Boy, I love the Word of God. I mean, I just... If I, li- I told Kathy on the way home the other day, if I lived to be a million, we could never exhaust what's in that book. It is powerful. So tonight we're going to begin 2 Thessalonians, the, the um, book to come after 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to look at what the Bible says about the second coming of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name for the blessing of God that you'll speak to us and minister to us and open the eyes of our understanding that we might see the greatness of your coming and be ready for that great day, Lord, when you return. Help us to be a church wise in the Word, strong in the Scriptures. We thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now turn to your neighbor and tell them that's going to be good. Can we, is it ready, Judy? Okay. Is it there? It's coming. Okay, it's there, but it's not there. And if it's not there, we're in real trouble. Okay, y'all just say hello to somebody for a minute. Because we've got to get it there. Okay? How many of you are looking forward to a great holiday time, Christmas? Can you believe it's Christmas again? It's hard to believe, isn't it? Amen. Is Heidi around? Heidi, did y'all check it today? Okay, we'll get this. You know what? Let me take this opportunity to tell you. We have a bunch of new equipment, and we're learning it. And that means there's going to be some bugs in it every once in a while. And so as we get through these bugs... Instead of me always looking up there like I'm not happy with them, we're learning this new equipment. And so we're going to get it, and uh, I trust we're going to get it, or else what I'm going to do is sit down here and read it to you and teach that way. Amen. (laughs) How are we looking? Oh, boy. Y'all want to give me a signal one way or the other? Do I, do I go this way? Okay, there's something up there. Do I go this way, Heidi? Pardon me? Yeah, we'll, just, we'll sing one more song while Jeff comes in here. So let's stand and sing one more song. The Lord must want some more worship. <clears throat> All right. Heidi, where did you go? There you go. (laughs) Boy, I'll tell you, we're together tonight. All right. Open the eyes, yeah. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Yes, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want 
want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Yes, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. To see you high and lifted up. Shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power in love. As we sing holy, holy, holy. See you high and lifted up. Shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power in love. As we sing holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. I want to see you. We sing holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. I want to see you. Open the eyes. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. I'm going to come down here, Jeff. I'm going to come down here if this isn't going to work. Do we have it? Okay. I see a small version of it. And Elijah saw a cloud the size of a man's hand. 
Okay. And now we have a larger hopeful version of it. I apologize, everybody. We're learning the new equipment. All right. I see it. Now, can I click it? We're good. Yeah. All right. All right. Turn to your neighbor and tell them this is going to be good. Now turn to the other side and say, it better be good. One thing I take heart in, there's not going to be any audio equipment or video equipment in heaven. It won't be there. And so, anyway, we're going to look tonight at part one of 2 Thessalonians, great book, and we're calling this Greetings, Growth, Grace, and Judgments. Now, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians had been sent on its way. We just finished that great series. And he had encouraged the young Thessalonian church, remember, it was newborn when Paul was driven out of town by persecution. So he told this young Thessalonian church uh, all about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians. He enlightened them, exhorted them to keep belief and behavior in balance. And Paul had also addressed the reality of the rapture of the church, which was a total first-time revelation. Nobody had ever taught it like Paul did, and he said, we got this from the Lord. Now, in his letter, he had referred to, quote, we which are alive and remain. Now, apparently, when they read that, some of them took this phrase to mean that Christ would return in Paul's lifetime. Well, that clearly didn't happen. Now, some in the church ran with this uh, misunderstanding and were filled with a fanatical expectation, sort of like we still see happening today sometimes. And they gave up <clears throat> jobs, they gave up responsibilities uh, and duties in order to wait for this great event. Yet others were filled with fear. They were just uptight about this. And I want to assure you, if, if tonight I could convince you that before midnight Jesus was coming back, there'd be a lot of people in here not excited, but afraid. Uh-oh, I don't know if I'm ready for this. All right? Now, so Paul had to write a second letter. And this has certainly worked out for our good because he tells us some fascinating details about end times events that are mentioned nowhere else in the Bible but here. Besides providing a vivid description of the Antichrist, which we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks, a little bit tonight, he tells us that the day of the Lord will not come until after two major events take place. One, an apostasy in the church, a falling away, a renunciation of the faith once delivered to the saints. I personally believe we're seeing at least a partial apostasy right now. Right now in the world, no doubt about it. So there will be an apostasy in the church and an apocalypse, which means an unveiling to the world. Well, an unveiling of what? The devil's Messiah. The devil's Messiah must come, Antichrist, and be revealed in all of his glitter 
all of his glamour, to a bemused, Christ-rejecting world. I used to wonder how that could possibly ever happen. I no longer wonder. I've watched our media. I've watched how easily they're deceived. How they'll run after anyone with charisma, with promises, and can be so easily deluded, and they will be. Now, the devil's Messiah will come on the scene. Second Thessalonians was probably written towards the end of Paul's stay in Corinth, or sometime near the end of A.D. 53. Now, Paul begins the letter by naming three men. Second Thessalonians 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul and Silas and Timothy were, in order, the evangelist, the teacher, and the pastor. God sends teams. They were God's big three for invading the European continent for Christ and changing the course of history. God sent an evangelist, Paul, teacher, Silas, pastor, Timothy. Now let's just look at these men for a minute because God still does the same thing today. When God's going to do a work, He raises up people. Different giftings, different gracings, to work as a team. See, you and me together as a team are going to build Christ in people, are going to reach people for Christ, and are going to worship Him in spirit and in truth. We're involved together in a divine work. Now, he sent this big three. Paul was the commander-in-chief. He took the lead, made the decisions, set the pace, engaged the foe, and did the preaching. He was the, as we would say in East Texas, the, the head duck on the pond. All right? Now, Silas was second in command. He'd likely been an eyewitness of Christ's ministry. He, he shared in both Paul's blessings and in his beatings. you got to love somebody to go with them where they're getting beaten, and you get the beating with them. And that's what Silas did. Silas shared in it with Paul. He never sought the limelight, never broke rank, never tried to hurry the pace, never dragged his heels, and he was never out of step, and he was an expert in the Greek language. In the heated synagogue debates that so often happen, Silas would be right there answering questions, adding his testimony, pointing to key scriptures, and supporting Paul all the way. They never undercut each other. There was no unhealthy competition. They all knew their place. There was no jealousy, no envy. You know, Paul would pray over handkerchiefs, hand them out. Demons would come out of people. People would be healed. And he didn't sell them either. Now, did that bother Silas? He said, no. He's the, he's the commander-in-chief. He's the leader. So I'm just going to do my part. And together we're a team. And as a team, we're going to penetrate Europe with the Word of God, with the Gospel. And that's what they did. So Silas was a right-hand man for Paul. Now Timothy was Paul's aide-de-camp, ever at the apostles' beck and call, ever ready and willing. 
half Gentile, half Jew. Paul trusted him implicitly. He wrote once, he said, I have nobody who's just like me, who is as similar to me in their love for you as Timothy. Who he had begotten, that is Paul, had begotten him in the faith. He would run here, run there, and everywhere at a nod or a word from Paul. No task too small, too great for Timothy. He would do it promptly and cheerfully. And what you're seeing here is a well-oiled evangelistic machine. Paul would stand up and preach. Silas would follow behind and teach. And Timothy would come along behind and pastor. It was a team. Now Paul continues in verses 2 and 3. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to read this with me, church. This is wonderful. We are bound to thank God. I hear two of you. Let's try it again. Come on, preach to me. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Powerful. The word bound means to be under obligation. It's used of a man who is in debt and who has to pay what he owes. Now look what he had said. We are bound to do what? What do I owe you? Those of you that I won to Christ, what do I owe you? I'm bound to thank God for you. And then he's going to tell us in a minute what it was he was thanking God for. But he says, he says, I'm bound. I, I'm, I, I've got a debt. I didn't just preach and leave town. We owe it to God and to you, says Paul to remember you with thanksgiving. Paul was not one to blow into town, preach the gospel, win souls, blow back out again, and never look back. He wasn't a superstar, even though he really was. You know, I really think the day of the, the evangelistic and pastoral superstar is over. We just need to be loving one another serving one another. There's super servants, but there's no superstars. Amen? Now, look what he says he thanked God for. He names them. He says, first, I thank God for your growth unstunted. He says, we're bound to thank God always because your faith, faith, faith grows not just a little bit, but exceedingly. He says, thank God, your faith didn't get stuck when I was driven out of town. But even though your father in the faith was driven out, your faith is growing exceedingly, super abundantly. Now, how many of you would agree that growth is evidence of life? And nobody expects a pebble to grow. You ever looked at a pebble and said, why isn't it growing? You know why? Because it's dead. There's no life. But we expect vigorous growth to come from something that is alive. You know, those churches don't ever grow. And you got to wonder if they're alive. Because churches ought to be having babies. Ought to be producing disciples. Ought to be reaching the lost. So he says, I thank God that your faith is evidently growing and that you are therefore alive and well. Amen. The evidence of somebody that's really alive 
and growing in faith is the fruit of the Spirit, their walk with God. It's not money. It's not things. It's not stuff. It's spiritual faith and fruit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, and faith should be growing if you're alive. Now what struck Paul was the growth of their faith. Growing faith is a direct result of occupation with the Word of God. You want your faith to grow? Get into the Word of God every day. Eat the breakfast of champions. It's the Bible. You can't do without it. He whose Bible is worn out probably isn't. Some of you need to pray about that one on the way home. Let me put it another way. If your Bible is worn out, you're probably not worn out. You've got to feed yourself the Word of God, your faith to grow. It's, it's, the, it's the result of occupation with the Word of God, answers to prayer, and increasing personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. So I get in the Word every day. Every day I open up that book, a lot of nights, most nights, and I read that Bible. I feed on the Word of God. Why? I want my faith to grow. I want to be wise. I want to be strong. I don't want to just get by. I want to be more than a conqueror. But I've got to feed myself the Word of God. Now, then he thanked God for their grace unstinted. He says, quote, And the love of every one of you all toward each other abounds. Now, look what was happening. Their faith grew, and with their faith their love grew. Those are twins. If your faith is growing, love is growing. Did you know the Bible says love works by faith? It operates under the anointing of faith. Love works by faith. The love of every one of you. Notice how he says it's every one of you in that church. All of you are growing in love. And it's abounding. So they had abounding faith. And they had abounding love. You know what that's a snapshot of? A healthy church. God did not call us to be his frozen chosen. He called us to be full of faith and full of love, and that love operates by faith. And that's a healthy church. The Thessalonians were growing amazingly well in the grace of love. And listen to me, church, love is what Christianity is all about. And it was abounding among them. Give me a church that's full of love, and I'll show you a church people cannot stay away from. They like knowing when they walk in, they're not being judged. They're not having a finger pointed at them. If their hair is different, or they're tatted up, or they got rings hanging off everything, no. They want to know they're loved, even if they're not like you, even if they're not like me. And if you love that way, I think that was what pulled people to Jesus. He loved you, and you knew it. He loved you unconditionally, and you knew it. So they were abounding in it. So we got a picture of a really healthy church here. Growth unstunted, grace unstinted. And finally, Paul thanked God for glory unsurpassed. He says, quote, so that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Now he's getting down to it. 
He's saying, what amazes me about you folks is you're abounding in love, abounding in faith, and all of that in the middle of being terribly persecuted, and you're young. Some churches that might have knocked them out of the saddle, not these folks. They stayed with it, even though the persecution was hot. Paul was in awe over the young church's ability to withstand persecution with joy. Not just getting persecuted, but having joy. The word persecutions points to the malicious hostility of others. When you're being persecuted, it is malicious hostility happening more and more, even in America right now, to believers. Now, that's persecution. The word tribulations underlines the agony of body and anguish of mind endured by those being persecuted he said i know that you're experiencing malice coming at you hatred dislike criticism slings and arrows of terrible accusations as a matter of fact their persecution was first instigated by the jews who hired bullies and mercenaries to do their dirty work for them and then the christians were hauled into court and accused of high treason they were falsely accused, harassed continually, as was Paul from town to town. It never let up. This man never knew life without being persecuted for Christ. And persecution has been the common lot of the church throughout its history. Now, can I shoot straight with you tonight about something? Some of y'all had a long day. Watch this now. I'm going to tell you, not to make you nervous, not to unsettle you, but I'm going to tell you persecution is coming to the West. It's coming to this country. It's already covered Europe. As a matter of fact, let me just show you some things that I knew, but when I looked it up, it struck me strongly once again. Ten terrible, jumping back in history a little bit, Going back to the first century, ten terrible official outbursts of st state-sanctioned persecution lasting some 300 years awaited this young church. Thessalonians were just the beginning. Climaxing in the fearful tribulations under the emperor Diocletian. I could go into descriptions of what they went through. Some of what I've read is too hard for me to even say. What they experienced for the cause of Christ that the landscape of church history is awash in the blood of martyrs. In fact, since then, since the first 300 years, every age has had its martyrs. In 2,000 years of Christian history, about 6 million faithful have given their lives for the faith. Now get this, of these, 45.5 million or 65% of those were in the last century. Now, you didn't get that. I'm going to say it again. 65% of 70 million martyrs took place in the 20th century. According to a new book that I looked at, researched, it's valid, it's good, it's sound. The book is called The New Persecuted. 
According to the author, the two currents that fuel the persecution of Christians today are communism and Muslim fundamentalism. Where you see Islam spreading without a check, you see Christians being persecuted. It's happening right now as we speak. Somewhere in the world, somebody, some Christian is being martyred by a radical Islamist extremist right now as we speak. Millions of Christians around the world are enduring what's been dubbed a Christian winter in the midst of the Arab Spring. Remember when we were hearing in the media, the always faithful, predictable mainstream media, that when Mubarak was taken out in Egypt, that this was the Arab Spring, the time for democracy, to take over Egypt and the Middle East. And oh, what a great day it was for democracy. And I remember saying to myself, the first time I heard it, that's a lie. Because what's going to happen is radical Islamist extremists are going to take over Egypt, Libya, and other major parts of the Middle East. And that means persecution and martyrdom for Christians. Well, that's exactly what has happened. What they were calling the Arab Spring, Christians are now calling the Christian Winter. Because as they, it's a movement of political unrest that has given way to Muslim dom domination and rising hostility against Christians in numerous Middle Eastern and African nations, including Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, and many other places in the Middle East. And what's happening is little bitty Israel is being surrounded totally enveloped by haters of their state, their country, their land, their people, who have said, we will not rest until you no longer exist. Secular regimes that once ruled many of those nations, Gaddafi, Mubarak, others, are being replaced with Islamic states that have instituted a form of Sharia law or Muslim legislation which is enforced on all citizens regardless of their religious affiliation. And they're trying to get Sharia law in this country right now. I tell you, the church needs to do a wake up all caps and start telling the truth. Islam is not our friend. Now you say, well, Pastor Jeff, there's some really nice Muslims. I know that. I'm not talking about a human being. I'm talking about an ideology, a philosophy, a worldview, an approach to life. It is totally antithetical to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we walk in and preach and His gospel. And in their own Quran, they are commanded to take over the world. And that's exactly what they intend to do, if they're allowed. Well, God's not going to allow that to happen, but if he did, they would. Nevertheless, we've got to be wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove and be very wise about these things. You look at Egypt now, Christian churches are being burned down. Coptic Christians are being martyred constantly in Egypt now. They're fearing for their life every waking minute because of the encroachment of Islam and the Muslim Brotherhood. For thousands of minority Christians 
It's a worrisome trend that has resulted in increased discrimination, imprisonment, physical violence, and death. The roll call of the martyrs at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be long. Seventy million as of now, much longer by the time it happens. The nobility of heaven will be the martyrs. They will be the aristocracy of heaven. Now next, Paul deals with the time when God settles accounts. When he deals with, oh man, judgment. Deals out judgment. First with his church, and then fearfully with the world. Behind both judgments is the unimpeachable righteousness of God. Now first, God is righteous. Can you say with me, God is righteous? God is righteous when it comes to judging saints. Paul writes these words, verse 5, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Now, Paul knew that the persecutions being endured by the Thessalonians were passing. Can you say with me tonight, this too shall pass? There is a darkness moving across the world, but this too shall pass. Um, he knew that these things were passing. So he says to the Thessalonians, take heart. The crowning day is coming. Meanwhile, God is going to use even the bitter persecutions to develop your character. See, when you and I get persecuted for the cause of Christ, it's just going to develop your character. Have you realized that you can't lose if you stay in the center of the will of God? You and I cannot lose if we stay in the center of the will of God. Because he's going to make everything work together for the good of those who love him. All right? Romans 8:28. Now, God is also righteous when it comes to the matter of judging sinners. Verse 6, quote, Paul writes, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. This passage anticipates the great white throne judgment that I'm going to talk about more in just a little bit. But in this sobering and terrifying place of judgment, all sin ever committed shall come under the scrutiny of the eye of God. Things that men have thought were unseen, unknown, and unrequited shall be proven otherwise. Men will realize that there was a God who saw everything and it was recorded. Every murder, rape, arson, act of fraud, child abuse, drug abuse, along with petty lusts, hatred, spites, and lies that are part of everyday life of millions of people are going to be brought into the light. There is nothing in darkness that shall not be brought to the light. By far, let's admit it, the majority of wrongs are never righted in this life. How many of you have ever been wronged and you never got to see it righted? Come on. Little things, big things. You never got to see it righted. Because in this life, they aren't always righted. Yet, we have an inborn sense that this universe is a moral universe. That's what God made because he's a moral God. So he made a moral universe where wrongs must be righted and good rewarded and that demands a day of judgment. Even an atheist will have this sense of 
There needs to be justice for this. Where did he get that? He got that from a moral God who created him with a moral conscience. And you can deny God all day long, but you can't get one micro inch away from the reality of your maker because he has imprinted his character in your soul. So, sin's consequences may to a point be avoided in this life, but they won't be avoided in the next one. The Alexanders, the Caesars, the Genghis Khans, the Napoleons, the Hitlers, the Stalins, all of those who have plunged the world into war and immeasurable miseries will all stand before the judgment bar of God, guaranteed. Five major judgments are named for us in Scripture, and I'm going to go through these quickly, and we're going to finish tonight. But let's understand that our God's a God of judgment because He's a God who is a moral God, a righteous God. So first, there is the judgment of sin. Now, where the believer is concerned, this judgment is already passed. Our sins were judged at Calvary. Hence, read it with me, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Jesus Christ. Why? Because on the cross, God judged your sin. So now you're free. Amen. So there's the judgment of sins, but then there's the judgment of saints. God judges his people in two ways. First, he judges them as sons in this life. Hebrews 12, 6 says, Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges every son that he receives. God don't raise no brats. If you don't think God's got a woodshed, backslide for a little while. He'll work you into a whale's belly. You'll wake up saying, oh, my Lord, I believe, I believe. Listen, he has got a whipping stick. Yes, he does. And he'll scourge you. He'll chasten you. Those are not nice words there. I mean, I'm talking about welts in your soul. God will spank you good if you're his child. Now, the Bible says we all stumble and sin in many ways, says James. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, God chastens us. But there is a difference between sin and sins. Sin has to do with what we are. We are born sinners under Adam's legacy. That's sin. We were born in sin, shaped in iniquity. But sins have to do with what we do. God has already declared that we are righteous under the blood of Christ. So who are we tonight in Christ? We are the righteousness of God in Christ. All right? But he now expects us to cooperate with his indwelling Holy Spirit, to deal with the sins in our lives. So his chastisement helps us do that. And it's part of the process and proof that we are indeed his children. If God didn't love you, he wouldn't chasten you. He'd let you go. But I promise you, he won't. If you or I give into the flesh, give into sin, go off and do something we ought not do and live in that, really begin to give into that, the woodshed's not far off. God has a way of working you into a corner. He has a way of getting your attention. He has a way of finding you with his word. And rules in the kingdom of men. 
and gives to whoever he will. Period. The nations of the world are going to be judged during the time of the Great Tribulation. When virtually all of them will have been united in their universal persecution of the Jewish people. Boy, did I want to get into that more tonight, but we didn't have time. I will sometime soon. Matthew 25, 31 through 33 says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels, and gives to whoever He will, period, the nations of the world are going to be judged during the time of the Great Tribulation. When virtually all of them will have been united in their universal persecution of the Jewish people. Boy, did I want to get into that more tonight, but we didn't have time. I will sometime soon. Matthew 25, 31 through 33 says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. That's the second coming. All the nations will be gathered before Him. How many of the nations? All of them. Russia, China, Japan, all of Europe will all be gathered. America will all be gathered in front of the Lamb of God. And what will he do with the people in those nations and the nations themselves? He separates them. He separates them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, he'll set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Now watch this. This is not just talking about the lost and the saved. The sheep are those who treated the Jews well. The goats are those who persecuted God's people. When he says, I was sick and you visited me. I was hungry and you fed me. Thirsty and you gave me a drink. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about the church ought to practice merciful acts of kindness. But he's also putting it in the context of how did you help his persecuted Jewish people? Did you help them? When Jesus comes in the second coming, it is going to be to judge every nation that has attacked Israel. Now that's a real sea law. I'm going to get into that more sometime soon. But folks, I'm going to tell you, I, I am concerned for the first time that I can remember our nation is really not standing behind Israel. And, and this, many of the parables of Jesus had to do with how you treated his people Israel, how you treated the Jewish people. May anti-Semitism be as far from us as Pluto, even further. We are to love his people, pray for them, and hold them up. Now, then there's the judgment of sinners. The unbeliever, according to Scripture, walks through life under the brooding shadow of the wrath of God. Jesus said, the wrath of God abides on him those who reject Christ. Often God's hand is not discerned in this process. It's a fact, though, that sinners often pay for their misdeeds in ways that we cannot see. Yet the judgment of God fast approaches when even men's idle words will be brought to account, according to Jesus. Now let's read John's vision of that terrifying day as we come to a close. John saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, 
and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, the who's who's and the nobodies, every race, color, creed, standing before God. This lets us know there's not a human that's ever lived that will not be one day resurrected. And books were opened. And here stands every person who has ever lived, small and great, and there's no place for them to hide. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up those that had died in the seas. And death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in waiting in them for this judgment. The waiting room. Death and Hades. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Where is this teaching coming from that says no one's going to hell? We just read it. God deliver us from this foolishness. That's why when we preach the gospel, it's serious stuff. Because if you don't come to Christ, you're here. Right there. And finally, there's the judgment of Satan. Let's stand. This is my favorite part. The judgment of Satan. One of the great mysteries of the universe is why God has permitted fallen Lucifer so much power, time, and scope to work his horrific ills on this planet. Nevertheless, his doom is certain. Amen. Satan will be incarcerated in the abyss in the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. And after this, he also will be cast into the lake of fire, the Bible says, forever. You know what that means in the Greek? Forever. (laughs) Worlds without end. Now next time, we're going to see a day of revenge is coming, and we're going to meet a man called Antichrist, the devil's child. Lord, right now we thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the testimony of the Thessalonian church that even in the midst of fiery persecution, they abounded in love and grew exceedingly in faith. Lord, thank you for the reality of judgment that because we serve a moral God who made a moral universe, there's going to be a judgment for sin. Thank you that our sin was judged at the cross and we bear it no more. Thank you, Lord. And right now we pray that you will anoint Turning Point to reach out with that outreach to go all over the known world with the gospel of Jesus Christ and win many to him. Many, many, more than we ever have in this new year to come. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing one stanza and then we'll go. Let's. <laughs>